Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for my podcast, Great New American Essays. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's spotlight is on the essayist Stephen Harvey and his latest collection, The Beloved Republic. Stephen has also written a memoir, The Book of Knowledge, a book-length essay entitled Wonder, and three previous collections. Besides being a founding faculty member of the Ashland University MFA program, Stephen is also a contributing editor at River Teeth and is the creator of the Humble Essayist website. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So let's let's plunge in here. Uh, the website, I did take some time and look at that. Uh, it's again called the Humble Essayist. Uh, if you don't mind, just briefly highlighting for us a few of the essay passages maybe you've you offered commentary on recently that particularly struck your fancy uh, from a stylistic point of view, or as you say, the uh, the writer's obsessions regarding various subject matter. Right. Well, in, in the humble essays, I take a paragraph from a writer that I admire or that uh, or that it, I feel is emerging, and uh, I take that paragraph, place it on the page, and then write a paragraph of commentary on it. Uh, the newest one is is on right now. It's it's written by Nicole Walker. She's an essayist who wrote Sustainability, a Love Story, and uh, it is about uh, her sense of of surviving uh, the global crisis. Her sense of both love and doom during that, and she writes in this exuberant style that's uh, uh, just a delight. It just sweeps you up, and and so I chose a passage in which I try to capture that. And so with each writer, I try to do that. I try to get the, um, the the style, the obsessions, the ideas of the writer out, and try to do it all in one paragraph. It's it's a lot of fun. You know, I I love the idea. It gives back to the community. I remember Garrison Keillor on National Public Radio used to take a poem a day and uh, read it in his wonderful voice, and yeah, uh, yeah and bring something to the culture that. Uh, Unfortunately, too often, and it gets shunned to decide whether it's poetry or, or essays, for that matter. Uh, you also run a press, uh, Humble Essayist Press, uh, where you mention on your website, because I didn't go there, that you take no remuneration whatsoever, neither yourself nor your two co-editors, uh, but you're trying to champion books that you say are sometimes uh, too risky for the commercial publishers to take on. Um, may you want to tell us a bit more about that endeavor and also some authors that you've been uh, proud to uh, give a bit of the limelight to. Okay, sure. Um, uh, the uh, it's really I consider it a, sort of an act of literary stewardship, in which uh, I've received a great deal of help in my career from other writers, yeah. and I feel it's my job to give back. As you know from my book, I consider the artistic world to be a beloved republic, and that means we all have to pitch in and help each other out. Because uh, there are a lot of uh, forces that want to distract us away from the kind of work that we consider to be so important. Uh, right now, we have a book out by Sid Lee, who's a poet, uh, and, uh, and 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 one called uh, 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 "The Visible Speaking" by Catherine Winograd, uh, and she's a poet as well. She takes images and puts them together with uh, her own kind of poetic prose and creates a very dynamic and beautiful text. Uh, so the kind of writers we're working on are ones who might be doing things that would not be seen as um, uh, a logical extension of their career. 
Uh, Richard Hoffman, for example, uh, wrote a book called Remembering the Alchemist that we did and you featured recently. Yep. Uh, uh, well, Richard sees himself as a poet and a memoirist. And he had all these essays stuck away in the air. Sure. Yeah. Richard. <laughs> That's why our press is here. So uh, he put them together, and I think it's one of his best books. It's really quite stunning. Well, and, yeah, it, it often gets said that uh, these days it's the small presses and academic presses that are keeping American literature alive because obviously it doesn't always sell boatloads and uh, can cause the big publishers to, to uh, back off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let, let's move to uh, your collection, the, 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 uh, you know, the beloved Republic. And as you mentioned, it's really about a collection of authors in part who are uh, trying to connect with each other, re reintroduce or help sustain humanity almost in some ways out there in the world. Um, very specifically, Ian Forster's essay, which is called what I believe is the inspiration. It's from 1939. And unless I'm mistaken, comes 2016 and the election of somebody and yes. uh suddenly you are you are writing political essays because they take up uh the first half of the collection essentially one one stripe or another um talk to me about that that impetus and uh you know was this something you were writing political essays before uh there were really some triggers that made you move that direction uh just give us give us the lowdown if you will well, for, I began my career really not considering political issues in my writing. They were about, I guess, metaphysical ones, love, death, family, that sort of thing. Very private. And uh, the, the second half of the Bloodwood Republic contains a number of those essays, and they're some of my favorites. But uh, after the election in 2016, I decided uh, that something was gnawing at me, and I had to find some way to address it. The problem is, how do you write an essay without it turning into some sort of rant or some sort of opinion piece? And uh, uh, so I decided to try to make it personal. And it came to me, I was at a writer's conference in Washington, D.C. on the same year uh, that the election occurred. And uh, uh, at that time, I realized that writers were struggling to find some way to talk about this. And my uh, main impetus behind it was that you try and make it personal. So after the election, and in which I found myself confused, I found my daughter and my family were confused. Uh, I I sat down and said, "Well, what can I do?" I began but began by reading Ian Forrester, and his his book is called What I Believe, and uh, he had this wonderful passage about the beloved Republic. Maybe I could just read what he had to say about that. Sure, by all means. He said. The beloved republic is not an aristocracy of power based upon rank or influence, but an aristocracy of the sensitive, the considerate, and the plucky. They are sensitive for others as well as for themselves. They are considerate without being fussy. Their pluck is not swankiness, but the power to endure, and they can take a joke. And um, in a sense, what he says is that when, when authoritarian leaders take over, they... Uh, are very destructive. They damage the, the the world, and they also damage the arts. And civilization retreats. But literature and civilization is ten tenacious, and it will return. And when it returns, it will be strong because of what it's been through. And so I took a look at Forster, and then I took a look at different events in history and in literature in which it seemed as if the 
forces being crushed out of the people, but they still survived and their art survived and came back to give us all hope that it, no matter how dark things get, humanity has almost always found a way to come back. Sure. Well, I remember that election very well. I have been in India and Modi had just taken essentially their equivalent of the 10 and $20 bill out of circulation. I'm trying to find out who's the next president of the United States and everything <laughs> only has the image of the 10 and $20 bill on it. I'm going, there's something else important going on in the world. Please, please tell me who won. It wasn't until the next morning there was two tourists in the airport uh, working with their laptop. And I said, please, who won? And that's the yeah. moment I, I learned suddenly. Um, and I was as surprised and bewildered and concerned as as you were. Speaking of community, and I think in part because of your, your website where you're championing these writers, uh, I had a particular question. It happens to go to almost the next aspect we're going to discuss the other side of the other, you know, other Steve Harvey, but it also just goes to writers who do profiles, profiles of other people, whether they be uh, political leaders, uh, because you said it's really difficult not to write the rat in some cases if you feel strongly. Mm -hmm. Are there writers out there that you have championed on your website that you've noticed in your other readings that you think do a good job with the the profile? You mean uh, on in the humble essays itself? Um, in the humble essays, or just in in writers out there nowadays. I mean, I I go back in time. You could have Guy Talese's famous essay. Frank Sinatra has a cold. Uh, Lillian Ross did a wonderful piece years ago, many years ago, on Ernest Hemingway when she spent time with him uh, out in Idaho. Are, are there writers you come across you think in that community, that beloved mm -hmm. republic of writers who really have spoken about other people, done it with humanity, and had an opinion? Maybe a political one, right? Okay. Well, I know that uh, that the touchstone for me was always Henry David Thoreau, whose uh, essay "Civil Disobedience" was uh, his attempt to find a way of writing about the political issue of his day. And uh, I write uh, that he has trouble finding his footing in that. He starts off with a rant. I mean, full of all these wonderful statements, such as that government is that governs best governs least, and these pronouncements. But it's not until he gets to that moment where he's in the jail itself and he looks around and he realizes that even though they've trapped him, they've not trapped his ideas, that suddenly the essay becomes very personal. And uh, so that was an inspiration for me. Uh, and I'll give one more. James Baldwin, who I, I taught for many years when I was a professor, uh, Baldwin uh, <clears throat> sort of taught me that when you write about politics, don't shy away from the possibility that the answer is a paradox. And so he, basically he wrote that he had to learn to both accept and reject uh, the uh, his country for what the, for the racism that was in it. He had to accept it or he couldn't find love. And he had to reject it or he couldn't live with himself for the cruelty that was perpetrating. So um, uh, in a sense, he taught me that you know th this, these are subtle matters that uh, don't necessarily get sorted out in a clear-cut way, which is a perfect venue for art and for literature. So those would be two cases where I found um, inspiration from writers who found a way in to talk about political matters. Okay. And in fact, I can I can tell you that James Baldwin was one of the three writers I covered in my dissertation. Uh, oh, wow. Long, long ago, it was Didion, Mailer, and uh, Joan Didion. Oh, and, I like all those. Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you read earlier from E.M. Forster. I'm going to read a little something from 
Philip Lopez's introduction to the art of the personal essay and anthology okay, of sure. many years ago, because it really goes to what I think was one of your concerns, one of the things you really surmounted beautifully in some of the pieces here. He says that one of the difficulties in writing on politics and social issues is as follows. To assert that all men are brothers, that prejudice and racism are bad, may win a writer points of heaven, but it is doubtful that these pronouncements will quicken the reader's pulse. The novice essayist often errs by taking a strong moralistic stance and running it into the ground with nowhere to go after two paragraphs. The <laughs> enemy of the personal essay is self-righteousness. You seem mm -hmm. very attuned to that particular pitfall. And I would say um, the other CVS Harvey essay, which you wrote, uh, does a wonderful job of uh, dipping into these issues, but not getting trapped. You have a lot more to say than two paragraphs worth. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that essay was, uh, was uh, uh, diff wasn't difficult. It was uh, reluctant. I, I, I thought of the title, The Other Steve Harvey, because I happened to see Steve Harvey on TV or something, the comedian Steve Harvey. Sure. And, and so I said, okay, I'm going to write an essay about that called The Other Steve Harvey. I had the title. And then I waited five years. I couldn't think of anything else to go with it. And what what was the breakthrough for me in that essay was when I realized it wasn't about the comedian Steve Harvey. It was about Trayvon Martin. And when I saw that it was about him, then I wrote the, I wrote the essay in a weekend. But it had been building a long time. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that it was a matter of trying to find some way of addressing a subject without just preaching about it. And the subject was my own unconscious bias, which, you know, as a long-standing Main Street liberal, I, I didn't really think I had, because I, I, intellectually I don't think I have it. But there are these unconscious biases deep within us, and I used that essay to explore it, uh, in which I try to figure out, well, uh, what part of me responds? And the, the breakthrough moment was uh, when I uh, remember that a friend of mine named John Canise showed me a photograph of some black girls who were scrambling to get into a photo. And they're, they were real excited and, and pretty. And I, I remember saying to him that, uh, how much I liked the photo. He said, until you can look at that photo and the first thing you see is not that those girls are black, racism exists in America. And of course, that was the first thing I saw. And as I worked through the essay, I realized that even though I voted for Barack Obama twice, probably the first thing I'd see about him is that he's black. And that the first thing I saw about Trayvon Martin was that he's black. And so I did, tried to deal with that and try to find some way of addressing that without being sermonistic, as you suggest, and, and committing Lopate's sin. Although I have heard, I have heard Lopate said that he loves a good rant. <laughs> oh no, because he, he's not—he's a pretty strong little guy. So I'm, yeah, not, oh, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not at all surprised that he even enjoy a rant at times. <laughs> um, but I think he's—he's he's got a good point. There, there are certainly some pieces that right. I've both read and, and written where, if I came out knowing what I knew coming in, I, yeah. I didn't think it was a good piece. There has to be some moment that unlocks it for you, that takes you someplace else, and yeah. you just did us the kindness of describing and, and being vulnerable about what that moment was for you, which is wonderful. Because um, I, I think there are those moments, just like for me, uh, you know, another white guy. And I, I remember one time I was listening on the radio and someone said, well, you know, I've mem I'm the black man and I've memorized Disney tunes and I use them selectively. If I'm on a street and the only other person there is a white woman, I will sing or hum the Disney tune 
because <laughs> he will tell her that I'm safe, that I'm, wow. I'm part of the general culture, that I, wow. I will not attack her. And it was, it's, it's a small little detail, but it told me so much yes. about how that person has to have a double consciousness and, wow. and move through their day. Um, yeah. So, so I, I appreciate that very much. And you know, Obama in the essay, we maybe want to say a bit more about this. He, Obama himself, talks about I could be, you know, this person, and there's an there's another side of of Barack Obama that you you cite in the essay. Yeah, well, Trayvon Barton, Barton, Trayvon is an, another uh, Barack Obama, the other Barack Obama, and Barack Obama is the other Trayvon Martin. So, yeah, I I think uh, 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 the essay got me to kind of look at that doubling that can occur as we see our lives and the the sort of the empathy that crosses over from Obama to Trayvon Martin and that I consider one of the most remarkable political speeches I ever saw. It certainly had a deep effect on me when he spoke about uh, racism in America and and and, and Trayvon Martin. Yeah, yeah I, I sometimes think that the only times Obama really enjoyed being president was when he could give a great speech. I agree. Um, <laughs> I think the rest of it, uh, down in the trench, uh, kind of got on him a bit. I think you're uh, right. Yeah. So let's move to something else. We're almost in the business world, but not quite, because you're talking about eclipsing the brand. Yes. And yes, you're talking about a particular philosopher you like quite a bit in the act of perception, but you're also talking about an instance where you're at the Great American Eclipse, which, of course, is just an eclipse, which gets... Uh, blown up into the great American eclipse. Um, tell us a bit about the essay, and then I have a very particular question on branding regarding writers. Okay. Well, uh, I, to me, the, the essay is about the difference between true perception and a perception that's being guided by a, a commercial society. So I took the, the eclipse because it went right over my house. Sure. But it was it was made into this huge thing, the great American eclipse, and uh, there's all this... Uh, uh, commercialization going along along with the eclipse in my little town, but then across the country because this eclipse crossed the entire country. And so what I was trying to figure out was, so what was my actual perception separate from what was being commercially pushed my way? And uh, it did. I do think it occurred. And I, I, there's a philosopher named uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and uh, he argues that... Uh, Perception is a bit like a handshake, the flesh of a handshake. When you perceive the world, it reaches back to you. And that mutuality of touch is the real experience. And it's not just about you, and it's not just about the advertising. It is about sort of the escape from the narcissism of the moment so that you can actually experience the world, so that the... Uh, the eclipse is like a kiss on your eyes. It's not some uh, 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 event that's been promoted by promoters. And uh, I had that. It was a little messy because I was out there with my son and his two daughters. <laughs> they just spilled ice cream on their dresses, and they were just furious. And he had he had to hold them so that they could see the eclipse. And as soon as it got full totality, they became quiet. I became quiet. And the world seemed transformed before me. So uh, it was a remarkable experience. I wanted to get the experience and also separate it out from the branding. Sure. And we get eclipsed by the branding and our perceptions get eclipsed by the branding because it's all packaged for us. I remember really distinctly knowing we were in a new era in the early 1980s because suddenly someone had a, a uh, you know, 
piece of underwear they were selling. It was called members only. And I thought, oh yeah, we've, we've moved into a world where that is a, you know, a favorable attribute to some that you're going to exclude others. And that was not the spirit of the 1970s and, and no. the, the Waltons and all of that kind of stuff. It was, it was definitely, definitely a new era. So my specific question has to be with how writers brand themselves at times. I mean, it can be the extravagant, uh, uh, way in which a, a Tom Wolf dress, for instance, right. uh, it can also be, and I, I was a little bit concerned by this. Uh, I can think of at least one prominent literary magazine that asked for the bio to be actually put on the front page of the submission. Well, and I thought, oh my gosh, that means that you might think you're reading the piece. <laughs> yeah, it is all right. Perceiving it, I'm, I'm not sure that the piece isn't branded going in and the, the windows of perception have been narrowed by this. Um, how, how do writers handle a role, which is indeed, to your point, very branded at this point? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure if I know a simple answer to that. I remember in college, I had a professor who said, uh, look at the way Hemingway holds himself on the back cover of this book. He said, this is all designed to enhance his brand, his, the way he's perceived, even before you open the book. And then the guy said, the professor said, all writers are branded this way. They're all sent out of the world that way. I don't think you can quite escape it. But I do think you can turn the page and just go to the page itself. To open the cover and just go to the page itself and start reading the words and let the voice talk to you. And the voice is not going to be the brand. If, if, it's a, if it's a really fine writer, the voice will have a distinctiveness to it that is not brandable, that is... Um, that, is, that escapes the brand, just the way the eclipse escapes the great American eclipse. Ah, that's a wonderful way of putting it. I, I like that very, very, very much. Thanks. So uh, <laughs> we're going to be out of time here shortly. I don't want to get to one last thing because we've been in the front part of the collection so far. Mm -hmm. But the back part, um, really <clears throat> strong for me, maybe in part because Peggy Lee hails from my native North Dakota. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was the Book of Knowledge. And in particular, because this is very serious subject matter, and I don't want to say a lot here for risk of being glib. I want to just turn the stage over to you. But um, after all, what you're recounting here is your mother's suicide. Right. And um, and she's listening to the Peggy Lee song. And the song's called Fever. And the line that you witness, observe your mom singing is, what a lovely way to burn. Mm -hmm. um, it's very poignant. Um, and that's why I don't wish to say anything or ask you a question. I just want to give you a few minutes before we close out here to talk about that essay and what it means for you. Yeah, well, thank you. I I, I, um, I was 11 when my mother committed suicide. And as I got older, the family never talked about it. And uh, I couldn't remember anything about it except a few flashes of memory that, that are in the in the essay. Uh, and uh, so I didn't write about it until I was 60. And I had this box of letters from my grandmother and uh, from, from my mother, all about the time that we were, uh, she, she was my mother and even before. And uh, this became a way into the subject because I really didn't know my mother. And uh, the book became a kind of lesson in the mnemonics of nonfiction. Because I tried to get from everywhere, photographs, art. My dad did an art drawing of her on the cover of the, of the, 
that's on the cover of the book. Um, and uh, uh, from pop culture, such as the Peggy Lee uh, event, uh, and uh, and these letters. And I was able, by doing that, to piece together why those little flashes of memory meant so much to me, how they were connected to the larger story and what largely happened. And uh, maybe I could read just a bit about from that, just a paragraph, okay? Sure. <clears throat> because the letters were the thing where I could actually hear her voice. After my mother died, I forgot the sensation of her touch and the sound of her voice. I could not hug a shadow. I could not fill her silence with my words. Who is suicide? She was suicide. She became her death. The hundreds of curled shavings of the past in the basket did not bring her back. Even when my mother gazed directly into the camera, I knew she was looking into a future that was already over, with shadows like gun smoke folded into the glossy black and white. I needed a voice speaking in her present, not one whispering to posterity, a voice animated by the desire to capture the present for someone alive. That is the voice I heard in the letters. When I read them, I got to know her for the first time, really. Know her and miss her. Miss her, not some made-up idea of her. The pain, which had been nothing more than a dull throb, changed in character, becoming softer, more diffuse, and ardent like heartache. Okay. That was well, what the discovery that uh, I made. Sure. Well, I, I can't be more eloquent than that, so I think I'm going to get out of here very quickly. And I'm just going to say thank you so much for being my guest, Stephen. Uh, this is the latest installment of Great New American Essays. My guest, Stephen Harvey, his collection, The Beloved Republic. I urge people to buy it. Until next time, take care and be well.